This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Hi, it's Graham Scott here again, and I guess welcome to my second podcast on the illusion of the rational human being. I've been thinking about that topic quite a bit actually since I started these podcasts, and I thought, I think it's pretty apt. Anyway, before I went on to this podcast, what I want to do is actually um, give a bit of a summary of what I did in the last podcast and what I covered. So just to sort of capture what we've covered so far. When I talked about the illusion of the rational human being, I talked about us being a small tribe species. And I think that's a pretty pertinent part of what I was driving at, because the whole notion is if given this small tribe species where we've developed intellectually, uh, cognitively, uh, technically, and we're almost going exponentially, you know, things like our uh, artificial intelligence, etc., etc. But we are lagging behind in our psychological uh, and social development. Social being the ability to communicate, psychological being the thing that's happening, obviously, inside the individual. And this links with the article that uh, Larson and Lafasto wrote in 1989 that I think I mentioned to you. And where that says, for several decades now, social scientists have been urging us to confront a sad paradox in our collective evolution. On the one hand, we possess the technical competence, physical resources and intellectual capacity to satisfy all the basic needs of mankind. Yet on the other hand, we seem to lack the essential ability to work together effectively to solve critical problems. And if you look at things like uh, the Ukraine crisis and climate change is an interesting one. I've been doing a lot of study on climate change recently and I'm a little bit interested, for want of a better word, in how we've got two sides of a scientific debate. How can you have science if you've got two sides of a debate? We've got the deniers and I guess what we might call the alarmists um, and then probably in the middle of the road we've got those trying to be scientists it just interests me. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but it's um, our ability to work together shows up there. Remember we covered the problem-solving, anxiety-solving model, I guess I'll call that, and probably a, a tip on that. When I was thinking about that and thought, I didn't leave you with a tip, and, and I didn't leave with, so what do I do about that? If you can think about sometimes what happens almost automatically when we have someone has a count of view or a strong count of view to your count of view. The first reaction is often to get angry, to counter with a put down, to discount their argument, to deflect, discredit them. And this then becomes a block to effective problem solving dialogue. So while we're solving the anxiety, we're actually blocking uh, the dialogue. And um, a threat to your ego, somebody has a real smart idea, You sideline them, you threaten them um, because your ego is being protected. And if we don't learn how to manage that, we develop that as our almost our form of ego protection uh, as a norm. Uh, And we we learn to do it well, which is unfortunate. And then we rationalise this. And again, with the theory espouse, the theory in use, look for the value that's operating at the time. What's the value you're using? Am I protecting my ego and pretending? Or am I saving face? Am I responding to a threat that isn't there? So the key to this is self-awareness. Develop self-awareness. Ask yourself the question, is my theory espoused in line with my theory of use? Sometimes it just doesn't matter, but crucial times it does matter. 
and am I solving the anxiety or am I solving the problem? So that's uh, broadly I wanted to start and I wanted to start to bring you to that point where hopefully you're thinking, yes, we are fairly irrational but we can do something about it. We can learn how to deal with that. What I wanted to take you all, I guess the journey today is around the systems approach. And what I wanted to talk to you there about was how, when we have a system, and if we looked at a systems approach, a system is the solar system, our human bodies are systems. We have technical systems. An electric motor is a technical system. Things are happening inside, okay? And typically in a system, things go in, things happen in the system, and things go out. That's what happens in a system. And within that, there's a whole, I guess, the system's dynamics. And what I want to introduce you to here in this uh, podcast is the social and the psychological dynamics. And a dynamic is a force that acts on the system from within or from without. Sometimes a dynamic is combined with other dynamics that are or have the potential to act on the system. So they're either acting on the system, have the potential to act on the system, or they act on other dynamics in the system. Some dynamics can remain dormant in a system uh, until they're acted on, and then they, be, they uh, I guess, interact within the system and change the system. And I'll talk about some of those in the cases that I'm going to use, and I'm going to talk about a couple of examples, probably two of the biggest uh, disasters this century's seen. And if you're looking at systems dynamics, um, for those of you who might Google it, you come up with a model that was um, introduced by an engineer scientist in the 50s, J.W. Forrester. And that whole notion of that system was looking at communities, big communities as systems. So when we built housing here, we had to make sure we had hospitals, we had to make sure we had roads, we had to make sure we had all of those sorts of things in the system. And the dynamics how you manage those dynamics. This is not uh, what I'm going to be referring to directly here, although it is obviously a very important part of of systems dynamics. So firstly, I'm going to introduce you to the the systems model. If we look at the systems model, and I've used an iceberg because an iceberg probably shows, it's a very good metaphor, of, of the things that are hidden and seen. So if we looked at a physical system, technical system, We've got the technical outcomes, as I said. We've got the technical processes. And we can see if there's flaws. We can look at an electric motor and say, oh, there's a wire loose here. So we can see a a flaw in the system. What's under the surface is the psychosocial system, personalities, power imbalance, those sorts of things that are playing out within the system. And those dynamics are impacting on the way that the technical system operates. Let me show you that a little bit further. So if we looked at, I guess, an example being a nursery, a garden. We have a garden. Water comes into the system. So that's a system input. Fertiliser, bacteria, sunlight, nutrients, pests come in. There's other things like uh, herbicides, pesticides, etc., that come into the the system. If you look at it, some of say we look at these as dynamics. <clears throat> nutrients, some nutrients might not act on the soil until water's added. So that's one of those dormant pathogen type dynamics that just sits in the system and does nothing until another dynamic acts on it. So if we look at that in the system, stuff happens. Dynamics 
interact and they act on the plants. And we get waste comes out, we get fruit, produce, flowers, depending what we're growing, oxygen, that comes out of the system. That's system's output. So a system has input, throughput, output. That's what happens in a system. Human body takes in food, air, oxygen, things come in through the pores of our skin, etc. All things happen in the, in the system. Energy comes out, waste comes out, and we produce our ability to walk and move, etc. Okay, that's, that's the system. So if we looked, I guess now at this garden, say from a different perspective, and, and say we can look at, okay, there's a physical flaw. Plants are dying. We can see that. That's in our system. Let's say it's a let's let's say it's in a greater system called a, a nursery. Fertilizer's been used incorrectly. Underneath, the supervisor calls a meeting, looks for the findings and the fixes, and we find that the scheduled worker was sick. So an inexperienced replacement was not trained. So the supervisor berates the team for not organising the trained replacement, and arranges for everyone to be trained on fertilizer application. Okay, that's solved. So that's sort of the dynamics in the socio-psycho looking at the dynamics in the physical. So if we do those things, if we work together, train people, we'll get better results. However, one of the things that this has got a little bit of, is a bit paradoxical. And what I'm saying by why it's paradoxical, I'm just going to read you now part of the report into the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. And this is what the people who wrote the report said. I find this very interesting. Many accident investigations make the same mistake in defining cause. They locate the widget that broke or malfunctioned, then locate the person most closely connected with the technical failure, the engineer who miscalculated analysis, the operator who missed signals or pulled the wrong switches, the supervisor who failed to listen or the manager who made bad decisions. When causal chains are limited to technical flaws and individual failures, which we've got over here with the garden, the ensuring responses aimed at preventing a similar event in the future are equally limited. They aim to fix the technical problems and replace and retrain the individual responsible. And such corrections lead to a misguided and potentially disastrous belief that the underlying problem has been solved. And that's the... I guess the difficulty with that. So let's look at that from this perspective here. Imagine that the issue underlying there is the supervisor's style. The supervisor's style restricts input and issue resolution. So again, if we look what's happening, the supervisor, imagine, has a very uh, rule-bound personality. Stick by the rules, has a very controlling personality. And also, there's lack of clarity of roles and responsibility. So imagine someone like uh, what I used to do goes into a, the organisation and looks around and says, Oh, you know, we've got some problems here with roles and responsibilities. There's an environment where the junior staff don't raise issues or question management. That's happening in the system. What this is, is what we call restrictive emotional space. And I want to talk about emotional space. It's a very important dynamic that is in any system where human beings are. We can talk about emotional space. So if you Google this, you'll get bombarded with a whole lot of definitions of what this is. But really, what it is boiled down, it's about how free one feels to express or to speak up, to express an opinion, express yourself, be yourself, for example. So in a workplace... 
Sometimes it can be bordering on bullying, but not quite. Subtle humiliation for challenging or expressing a view. And I saw a, a very good example of this in uh, an organisation that I was working in where a female junior engineer came to a meeting and had been working on uh, trying to resolve an issue, came to the meeting and presented what she saw as a solution. And eventually it, it worked out that this was a very good solution. In the meeting, she was subtly berated by her supervisor for not bringing that to him before she presented it to the meeting. The whole issue being his ego was damaged by a junior, and in those days, female engineer, having a better idea that he should have had. So pretty much what he was looking for was her to bring it to him, him to present it to the meeting, get the accolades and say, aren't I wonderful? So his ego was damaged. Her response was immediately to withdraw. And here's a wonderful person with a wonderful technical mind suddenly shut down. Fortunately, we were able to pick it up, I won't go into it, and um, engage that manager in, I guess, some appropriate coaching uh, in emotional intelligence and um, being aware of emotional space. But this is an extremely important, expansive emotion spaces. If you've been in a workplace where you feel just so comfortable being able to talk or in a community group or even you ever been to a place where you think, oh, no, such and such is going to be there. They're so judgmental. Everything I say, they just pick on my ideas. Have you ever been in those sorts of situations? That's restrictive emotional space. And it's a very important dynamic. It, it stops, stifles conversation, stifles ideas. Uh, we see it in families, communities, clubs, political parties, wherever human beings are getting together. So I wanted to spend a bit of time, I'm going to talk about in another podcast, the whole notion of uh, emotions, emotion intelligent, emotions driving decisions, etc. And I'll be, I guess, talking about it there again. So what that results in is poor communication, poor issue resolution. So I want to move now to, I guess, one of the most significant disasters, we'll call it. Was it a disaster? In this century, January 16th, 2003, that was the Space Shuttle Columbia, taking off in all its glory. February the 1st, 2003, Space Shuttle Columbia, scattered over, I don't know how many states of the United States, um, all the astronauts killed, the total loss of the vehicle. What happened there? From a technical perspective, the foam, that foam insulation around the uh, fuel tank broke away and impacted on the leading edge of the, um, of the left-hand wing, or just under. So the left-hand wing was damaged. Hot gases compromised the wing integrity. So when the um, aircraft came back into the atmosphere, while it was up in space, it was OK because there was no hot gases. Impacted on the integrity of the wing, the shuttle disintegrated. That was basically it in a nutshell. What happened underneath... In the socio-psycho, psycho sounds like a funny word, and then we're all psycho, psychological aspect. What happened there? Firstly, the mission team lead, a lady called Linda Ham, obviously tremendously smart lady, would have had to be to be where she was. Linda Ham's role was the mission team lead, but at the same time, she had another role as being the scheduling manager for the next shuttle. So by having those two roles, 
And this is one of those almost pathogens. This might never, ever, ever be a problem in a normal day-to-day event. But she had to make some decisions around what was happening with the Columbia. And the accident report actually found that most of Linda Ham's decision-making was directed at the next role, the next flight. So it was a, became more of a scheduling issue than an in-flight safety issue. Again, I'm not taking away from Linda Ham. Was she negligent? I would suggest definitely not. Was she just human? Yes. And unaware of the impact of how important something like this can be. The NASA culture. NASA had a very can-do schedule culture. We can do. And schedule, schedule, schedule was their thing. So that dynamic impacted again on Linda Ham's decision-making where she focused on schedule. The group dynamics, very quickly, we'll talk about group dynamics in another podcast a little bit further on, but there was a team appointed, a debris impact assessment team, to report on the potential damage. And this team, normally NASA actually set up what they call tiger teams. This team wasn't a tiger team. And because it wasn't a tiger team, it didn't have a a mandate. So if we go back to that tribal stuff, it wasn't part of the tribe. It wasn't accepted into the main tribe. So therefore, it couldn't influence the senior management team because it wasn't set up effectively. So that was one of the contributing dynamics. The team belief system, the mental models. A mental model is a belief we hold. Very quickly, an example of a mental model is, say, if I hold a strong rule that when you're driving on the road, you stick to the speed limits. That's what you do. Okay, that's what speed limits are for. So when I'm out in the open highway, I stick to the speed limit. When I'm in the overtaking lane, I pass slower cars, stick to the speed limit. Somebody else has a mental model where you drive to the conditions and if it, you need to um, break the speed limit, you do. But you're very careful, you're very responsible, etc., etc. When we meet in the overtaking lane, if I'm in front... Sticking to my speed limit, there's a car beside me, just, and I'm just barely overtaking it, just getting by. The person behind me who holds the mental model of, you drive safely but get on, we have road rage. So that's, that's what, how important our mental models are. It's how we think about some of those things that we're almost, uh, takes a crowbar to shift us off our ideas, for want of a better word. You've got to really work hard to get somebody off their ideas. So in in the Columbia, because of the previous flights where this foam had broken off, what had happened was they pretty much had a mental model that the foam won't impact or won't hurt the shuttle. We've had these foam strikes before. This piece of foam was 100 times bigger than any other piece of foam. So what the engineers looking at it or what... Boeing engineers did, they used this model called Crater, which actually looked at the impact of, I guess, space dust, space debris, etc., on the shuttle and how much the shuttle could stand. They used Crater and came back with a response to the mission team management saying, yeah, it's okay, it'll, it'll be right. What they didn't allow for was the piece of foam was 100 times larger. In the investigation, the investigation team said, well, Crater wasn't a good model. The person who developed uh, Crater, a guy called Alan Richardson, actually came back and said, no, this is not correct, because what 
they've done is they've used Crater inappropriately. And he was able to say that what had actually happened was they had looked to find the, the answer they wanted, so they used Crater to find the answer they wanted. And what he actually said was... There was an underlying message. It seemed to him that Boeing was desperate to tell its big client what it wanted to hear. Crater was only designed to evaluate damage by small pieces. This was outside the parameters, a hundred times larger than anything it was designed to evaluate, as I've said. As he began to examine the analysis from the mission, he looked at a second piece of research that engineers did during the mission to determine the potential for the heat of re-entry to harm the shuttle. Again, Richardson said he found numerous errors. Unlike the crater analysis, the nature of the errors in each case was to reduce the predicted damage to the vehicle, indicating this was the goal of the analysis. That's extremely important. And what that leads us to is what we call confirmation bias. And this is a critical dynamic, again, in any human situation. And what confirmation bias is, we mostly find what we want to find, whether we find it or not. Okay, We find what we want to find, whether we find it or not. So while they were focused on schedule, while they were focused on this is not an in-flight problem, they used Kratos to actually reinforce their mental models. So that's what confirmation bias is. Where do we see confirmation bias play out? Police investigations. I don't know if any of you have read The Staircase Murders. Michael um, Peterson, who was accused of killing his wife, pushing her down the stairs. The police, or the prosecution, shall we say, actually concealed evidence. And their view was, well, this evidence isn't really important. We know he did it. Why, Why just confuse things by throwing in this evidence that might suggest he didn't? The evidence for them was so compelling that this was definitely a murder, any counter-evidence was discarded. If you look at probably another one was Richard Jewell in 1966 um, when Atlanta hosted the uh, Summer Olympics and they had the the big festival in Centennial Park. And Richard Jewell, who'd been, I guess, what's the word, in trouble for want of a better word, for being a little bit overzealous in the past, when he actually found a uh, knapsack and reported it and he set up an exclusion zone, only two people were killed, and probably if it hadn't been for his intervention, more people would. He was then targeted as the bomber, and he was relentlessly followed, targeted by the investigation team that he was the bomber. And they focused so hard on him, they made his life very difficult. But what often happens in these situations is they don't look outside to say, oh, there could be another option. And that's the danger of confirmation bias, that we don't look outside for counter-arguments. This was the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Quite amazing. That's a photograph of Deepwater Horizon in April 2010. You remember that, the oil well in the Mexican Sea, BP oil well. If we look at, again, Deepwater Horizon very, very Briefly, surge of national ga- natural gas blasted through a recently installed concrete core. 11 people were killed. I'm going to say to you here, while these underlying dynamics in the uh, psychosocial aspect or the part of the system were a major contributing factor, the a- accident report found this, 
it might have been, there might have been other issues previously, and I think there was a lot of issues around repairs, etc., etc., that contributed to the whole thing. But on the day, there were a number of things that exist in this um, area of the system were major contributing factors to that disaster. And if you think about it, I don't know if any of you have read the reports on that, how much that actually cost, how much that cost. Cost $50 billion, $50 billion for what occurred there. Quite significant. Irreparable environmental damage. What were some of the key underlying drivers there? Again, the mental models and the confirmation bias, the emotional space, the breakdown in communication. The mental models held that this pretty much couldn't be happening, that it was bladder effect was the argument, and the tests almost were read to show that. The emotional space, uh, people had spoken up previously about some of these issues and had been shut down. That leads to a breakdown in communication. So these dynamics were major contributing factors to the breakdown that occurred there. So folks, I, I, I'll, I'll end it there on this, um, this podcast. What I wanted to clearly demonstrate is the systems model and how important we take the systems model, we must, must, must consider the human aspects, not human skills so much, those dynamics, the group dynamics, the confirmation bias, the emotional intelligence, the emotional space, how all those things contribute to the success or failure of a system, whether it's a technical system or whether it's a social system like a bowls club um, uh, or a, a golf club, for example. Those are the things that are extremely important in making sure we have that. So while I've left it here now in that uh, looking at the, the social, psychological aspects of the system, in future podcasts I'm going to start looking at how our belief systems work, how we develop our belief systems, how our belief systems influence our irrationality, um, how we hold on to beliefs even when they're proven to be wrong how our emotions impact on decision-making, power, power roles, all those sorts of things. Again, thanks for being with me and we'll post this as such that hopefully you'll be able to uh, contact me with any of your questions. I'll see if I can um, answer as many as as I can. Thank you very much for being with me. Have a good week.